Let's please stand for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson. It comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's always a relief when you put your key in the church door after July and it still fits. Uh, I assume nothing these days. And so when that happened this past week, I was very grateful that the locks are still the same locks uh, that were on the doors in June. Uh, Jim, thank you for reading our lesson. Every time I hear Jim Bergen read, I wish I could just lip sync my sermon with his voice, uh, the rest of the, the message. Uh, it's so good to see you, and it's so good to be in worship. Casey and I in the back, as uh, Greg and Patsy were playing, you just feel the presence of God, the Spirit of the Lord in this place as we begin this new school year today. Um, I think, I think it's fitting on this back-to-school weekend, as we later on in the service are going to commission our students to see their classes, their schools as mission places, as we pray over the teachers, administrators, I think it's fitting that we begin a series on August the 11th on wisdom. And so we're going to think together over the next 10 weeks on this theme called Wise Up. You're probably aware of it, but the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew canon, is divided into three sections. First of all, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. Secondly, the prophets, major and minor prophets. And thirdly, the third section is called the writings. In the writings, there are 13 books, and there is a subsection within the writings called wisdom literature. In that subsection of the Old Testament canon, there are three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. We're going to be thinking together between August and May during this back-to-school time, during this school year, about the wisdom literature. I have never preached a series on Proverbs. I'm ashamed to tell you that. And I think maybe you do too, that the wisdom material is maybe the least read, the most often neglected, and the most necessary in our age. The social scientists tell us today we live in this age called the information age where we have massive amounts of data at our fingertips. In fact, I've noticed sometimes that when I say something from the pulpit, particularly questionable, you're on your iPhone fact-checking me with Google and the mother of all intelligence, Wikipedia. 
where we have oodles of knowledge, but we seem to have a dearth, a deficit of wisdom. We think about many things, but we don't always think through things. I'm obsessed with headlines. We're obsessed with sound bites, but we seem to be losing the attentive capacity to read between the lines, to contemplate, to discern. And I don't know how it is with you, but already the school year just begins and and we feel like we're about a mile wide and a half an inch deep. Wisdom. It's interesting to me that the word proverb in the Hebrew language is mashal. You see the word mashal, say it with me, mashal, which literally means a saying or an adage, an admonition. It's a, it's a pithy maxim. It's a nutshell of truth. You might call it a literary fossil because these nutshells of truth have behind them centuries of wisdom, ethical wisdom. In fact, you know more than you think you know about the Proverbs, and we're going to cover some of those. Next week, trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. That's Proverbs 3. About this one, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. About this one, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. You know more than you think. Pride goeth before a fall. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh response stirs up anger, train up a child the way she should go, and when she's old, she will not depart. A good name is better than great riches, wisdom, maxim. Every culture has them. Every generation has them. In fact, I remember my grandmother, who's been gone for about 20 years, my grandmother on my mother's side was the queen of Proverbs. Uh, she knew them all, and buddy, she knew how to use them. My grandmother's maxims were not necessarily biblical, but when she spoke them, they sounded like the Bible to us. In fact, to most of her grandchildren, they sounded apocalyptic, to be honest with you. And, you. and you know, you can complete many of these. This is, she was from Bluefield, Virginia, Southwest Virginia, the Appalachian part. A penny saved is a pretty is as... Two wrongs don't make a practice makes. The squeaky wheel gets the better late. Birds of a feather. A picture is worth. The early bird. Actions speak louder. Don't count your chickens. Absence makes the heart. You can lead a horse to water. Y'all know that better than Scripture, my goodness. Be ashamed. None of those are in the Bible, but Grandma knew them. I mean, it's native intelligence, right? It's natural revelation. It's Romans 1 stuff. It's just common sense, which there seems to be a lack of. Is it just me? We don't think deeply. We don't think through our muchness, our manyness. My, my grandmother in the hills of Southwest Virginia, a teacher, a mother, 
who raised three girls, the oldest of whom was my mother, the youngest was my Aunt Peggy, who will be with us at 11.05 today, all three girls, high school valedictorians, and all three married Methodist ministers. I know what you're thinking with knowledge like that. They weren't very wise, were they? In fact, one of them did it twice, and that's another story. There's a difference, I think, between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information, and that's important. Wisdom is application. Knowledge is cerebral, and that's important. Wisdom is experiential and practical. Knowledge, as we used to say, is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing you don't put tomato in a fruit salad. Somebody fact-checked me last night and discovered it's a fruit and a vegetable. Are you happy? The Hebrew word for wisdom is hakma. In the Hebrew, hakma, which literally means skill. It means you have some discretion. It means prudence. Now, Jim, the prologue that you read to Proverbs makes very clear that the purpose of hakma is not simply to make us more intelligent. It's not just to make us more enlightened, but the purpose of hakma is to help us to become more disciplined in doing what is right, what is just, what is equitable. So it turns out the function of wisdom, according to Proverbs, is not just intellectual, it's moral. And by the way, the writer also makes clear that this curriculum, and this is our curriculum for the next two and a half months, this curriculum is for both the inexperienced and the learned. It is for the ignorant and the wise. It's for the preschooler and the PhD. Though I've discovered that the PhD is much more difficult to teach. These Proverbs have an author, or at least were authorized by a king. You remember his name? His name was Solomon. In fact, his very name, which means peace, is actually a synonym for wisdom. It's interesting that Solomon's birth, his conception, was rather precarious. He was the son of a woman named Bathsheba. His birth was the result of an adulterous affair between Solomon's daddy in Bathsheba. You remember the story. Solomon was the third and final king of the United Kingdom of Israel. He ruled for 40 years. And you may remember he prayed a prayer in 1 Kings 3 where just after his anointing, just after his coronation, he went up to a high place, a mountain called Gibeon, and there he offered a thousand rams. He sacrificed to God, and God came to him in a vision and said, my son, ask whatever you wish of me, and I'll do it. Now think of that. He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for wealth or fame or for glory, but he didn't. He asked for wisdom. Listen what he said. Oh God, give to your servant an understanding heart to lead your people that I may discern what is good and evil for who is able to govern this great flock? I've been praying that prayer myself during the month of July. 
and God answered Solomon's prayer. Listen to 1 Kings 4. God gave to Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that his wisdom actually surpassed all the wisdom of the people of East and even in Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and listen, his songs numbered 1,005 songs. He would have fit well in Nashville. He was a composer, a songwriter. He loved nature. He spoke of trees, the cedars of Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He took long walks at Radnor. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Oh, there's a lot of stories we could tell. My favorite Solomon story is 1 Kings 3. You remember the story. There were two women who were sharing the same resident. Both became pregnant about the same time and gave birth near the same day. One of the two mothers accidentally in the night rolled over and smothered her infant child And noticing that the child was no longer alive, while it was still dark, she switched her baby with her roommate's child, and the next morning there was trouble. Both women claiming the same child as her own, and they brought it before the king. He deposed them. It was a simple case of she said, she said. He heard their testimonies, and what he did next was nothing short of brilliant. He called for security, and the guard unsheathed his sword, and the king ordered that the child was to be cut in two, and both women would get half a baby. And just before the death blow, one of the women, one of the mothers, consented to allow the other to take the child, sparing the baby's life. And for King Solomon, this woman's action supplied the necessary intelligence to solve the case. It's brilliant. Solomon, discerning that she was indeed the real mother, placed the child in the custody of the woman who was willing to give him up. And so the tale of the tape was where justice was served by a compassionate mother and a wise leader. There's one other note. I want to share with you in this intro, I'm not almost finished. This is going to take a few minutes. The last thing I want you to note in the prologue, besides the author who authorized the wisdom and who provided the purpose and the audience, the last thing I want you to notice is the theme of the book. This is very important. It's in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Say that with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Look at that word fear for a moment. It's not what you think at first about fear. It's not phobos. It's not phobic or phobia. That's terror or to be terrified. The word literally is yirah in Hebrew, which means reverence. It means adoration. It means awe, worship. 
So what distinguishes godly wisdom from native intelligence is reverence. We could use some of that too. Wisdom begins with divine reverence. That is the origin and the goal of wisdom. Now, I understand that that precept, what I just said, contradicts the assumption that is basic to our secular worldview, which asserts that knowledge of the real world is independent of the knowledge of God, that we actually separate secular wisdom in our culture from spiritual wisdom. Here's what I believe. It's all spiritual. Everything about us is spiritual. What we say, what we do, how we treat our neighbor, it's all spiritual. There is no division, but it's the division that got us in trouble according to Genesis 3. In the garden, after God made all that is and put his offspring in Eden, he gave us freedom to eat from any tree with one exception. And you remember what happened? There's one prohibition. All the rest is ours for the taking. And there comes along a serpent, a creature, who insinuates that God is not to be trusted. This is temptation. And so the serpent says, did God really say you can't have any of the fruit? And the innuendo is that by disregarding God, their eyes will be opened, and they will become wise. Hakma. The idea in the fall is that wisdom actually comes from irreverence, the absence of any authority or obedience. And they, like I, like we, they fell for it hook, line, and sinker. And the result is disastrous. There's disobedience, there's shame, there's fear, there's hiding, there's isolation, there's buck passing, and death. Irreverence. Same kind of thing happens corporately in Genesis 11 in the Bible story. You remember the people get together and they have a little building committee meeting and they decide we're going to build an entire civilization without God in the absence of the divine being. Why? In order to make a name for ourselves. And it didn't go well. It never does. When the purpose of a culture or a social order becomes egocentric, self-centered, rather than theocentric, God-centered, there's trouble. And in the tower story, there's a communication gap. And when people speak to each other, it sounds like babbling. And the result is a scattering effect. As believers in Christ, we are necessarily a theocentric people. Wisdom begins with that. We are God-centered. We are Christocentric, Christ-centered, which is one of the core values of BUMC, because when we lose our center, it's sort of like a car that I once drove the alignment gets all out of whack. 
And it begins to take me in directions that I would rather not go. It veers to the left or to the right, and it usually leads to folly rather than wisdom, leads to division rather than unity. It leads to destruction rather than reconciliation because I'm so off-centered, out of alignment. The repetition that we're seeing, the recurrence of violence and hostility and contempt that we're seeing in our culture that we saw in El Paso and Dayton last week is evidence of a culture that needs recentering. Am I the only one sometimes who feels like, I'm concerned that sometimes we're more concerned about politics than people, and we're better at dumbing down than wising up. And wising up begins with reverence, because when I trust the creature over the Creator, it doesn't wind up well. When we lose our reverence for the Creator, we lose our respect for the creation and we ridicule those who were created in the image of God. Wisdom begins with reference. I need recentering. We need recentering in a way that doesn't just pit us against each other. We have a discourse in the church that is rooted in hakma, in the way of Christ who speaks peace into chaos and brings light into darkness and clarity and confusion and wisdom into our foolishness. After all, it's Jesus who is the embodiment of wisdom, hakma made flesh. The kingdom of Christ that he came to initiate, this tower that Jesus came to build is not a political movement that divides and conquers or creates winners and losers. It's a situation where the lion lays down with the lamb, where the leopard is comfortable with the goat, and maybe even the elephant with the donkey. The kingdom of God is a situation in which AR-14s are bent into plowshares and machetes into pruning hooks. And that's not a pipe dream. That's a prophet's promise. We need recentering. Christocentric. The last few weeks I've done a lot of study. I shared a reading list with you in an e-note this week. And one of the books that I read was a book by a Franciscan monk named Father Richard Rohr. Some of you have read his books. His book on falling upward is a classic. He's a Catholic, a Franciscan. I took several of our men several years ago to Albuquerque to a retreat that he shared. His writing has blessed so many. His recent book that he read, uh, that he wrote right after his heart attack, he's almost 80, is called The Universal Christ. This is a must read. In his last chapter, he comments about the loss of center in our theology and in our politics. Now, I want to warn you. I'm going to quote from it. I'm going to warn you now. I don't agree with everything he says, but he is an equal opportunity offender. This is what he says. Based on years of spiritual direction with people in the U.S. and other countries, I have 
seen some tendencies in conservatives and liberals that I'd like to challenge. This is what he says. We'll start with conservatives, but liberals, buckle your seat belt, your neck. Conservatives, he said, need to learn to let go of their illusion that they can order and control the world through religion, money, war, and politics. This is often the real security system. Their intense religious language often shows itself to be a pretense and a cover for a rigid status quo. Indeed, true release of control to God will always show itself as compassion and generosity and less boundary keeping. End of quote. Liberals. Liberals need to surrender their belief in permanent disorder and their horror of all leadership, eldering, and authority and find what is good and healthy and true about foundational order. This will normally be experienced as a move toward humility and real community And they must stop reacting against all authority and tradition and recognize that these are necessary for continuity in a culture along with basic mental health, which allows them to belong to something besides themselves. Everybody offended now? I know I am. What Father Rohr is saying is it's time to wise up. Last word. I have a picture in my home study of a bristlecone pine tree. You know what those are? One of the oldest living organisms. I think it's the oldest living species of tree. In fact, this is Methuselah. Say hello to Methuselah, 4,800 years old. They're not much to look at, but they have endured. They have persevered in some of the most arid and impossible environments in the world where they get high winds and very little water. But what makes them last is their roots. Their root system is called geotropic. They even flourish in rocky soil because these geotropic roots instinctively search out the soil and detach themselves to the ground of all being, which enables not only their survival, it enables them to thrive. And I keep that picture on my desk as an expression of wisdom. In fact, it reminds me of another tree at Golgotha. Not much to look at, but for us is a sign of reconciliation and redemption. And it begins with reverence. Awe. Oh, for the one who is the ground of all being, it's time to stop dumbing down and start wising up. And according to Proverbs, what we need to do in order for that to happen, like Solomon, is just ask. Even the brother of Jesus, James, said in 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously and ungrudgingly, 
and it will be given you. But allow me one word of caution. If you ask for it, you'll get it. But what you get may not be what you already know. For his thoughts are not my thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. It's time to wise up that we might walk in a manner that is right and just and merciful to the glory of the one who is our wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.